Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Adams. Today's episode is on emerging insights on adverse events during antiretroviral therapy and implications for treatment, featuring Dr. Fidelia Bernice from University of Maryland Medical Center in Baltimore, Maryland, and Dr. Adia Rana from the University of Alabama at Birmingham in Birmingham, Alabama. They'll discuss ART safety and tolerability, including recent data on nephrotoxicity and safety with long-acting injectables. Following their dialogue, the faculty will field questions from healthcare professionals. Let's get started and listen in to Drs. Bernice and Rana. So for my portion of the talk, I'll be focusing on nephrotoxicity. So we know that in patients living with HIV, it's recommended that they be on lifelong antiretroviral therapy. So we have to balance the efficacy of these great drugs with their potential side effects and tolerability issues that they might have. So we have listed here a bunch of different uh, safety and tolerability concerns we want to think about when we're choosing antiretrovirals for our patients. Um, but any of these topics could really be an hour long and um, on their own merit. So I'm just going to focus on the renal health for my portion. So how do we avoid nephrotoxicity in our HIV positive patients in whom we're starting antiretroviral therapy? Nephrotoxicity, we mainly think about with the nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors, or NRTIs, as I'm going to say for the remainder of the presentation, and namely with our tenofovir products. So we know that uh, TDF is associated with renal injury, and it's recommended to actually avoid in patients with a creatinine clearance less than 50 mLs per minute. Now, this formulation has been upgraded to the newer, safer option, tenofovir alafenamide, or TAF. And in combination with other antiretroviral agents, it's recommended to avoid if a creatinine clearance is less than 30. Um, you will, if you review different combination products, you'll see that there are actually differences. And there actually are some exceptions for which TAF-containing products you can use in hemodialysis. So the combination of bictegravir, emtricitabine, and TAF, um, Elvitegravir with Cobixostat, emtricitabine, um, and TAF, and as well as Repivirine, FTC, and TAF can be used in hemodialysis. Uh, we know that Abacavir can be used without regard to renal impairment, so that's good for our patients who have um, concomitant CKD and things like that. It can be used if they are HLA-B5701 negative. Um, and we can also, we think about lamivudine. It does recommend it to be um, renally dosed, but it's actually not associated with renal toxicity. And even in clinical practice, it's actually common not to follow the package inserts labeling and give more than um, is recommended basically for ease of administration, uh, focusing on adherence in our patients. Emtricitabine, which we know is also a structural analog of lamivudine, is also recommended to be renally dosed. But again, you will find inconsistencies in the package inserts as to what you should do and which products can be given. So I want to focus a little bit on lamivudine. Um, it's common practice. I know in my practice and other places I've seen to give more than recommended uh, because we essentially want to give patients the easiest tablet size to give them instead of avoid and avoiding having them to dose with the liquid formulation. So this study actually looked at the safety profile of giving higher than recommended lamivudine doses in patients with renal dysfunction. So you'll see here about 34 patients were included, men and non-pregnant, non-lactating women who were adults and had been receiving lamivudine as part of their regimen for at least three months. Um, at various creatinine clearances, they had decided to give more than recommended. So if your creatinine clearance was 30 and above, you got full dose at 300 milligrams daily. 
15 to 29, you got 150 milligrams. And for the hemodialysis patients, they got um, either 100 milligrams or 150 milligrams. And they did pharmacokinetic analysis to see like what were the concentrations, both CMIN, AUC, and CMAX in these patients. And what they found was that the observed um, CMAX values were actually comparable across the um, all, all four creatinine clearance cutoffs. And um, they did see slightly higher CMAXs in those with worsened renal dysfunction, but it wasn't uh, wasn't clinically significant. And when they evaluated things such as lactic acid levels, they actually found that they were all within normal limits. Again, so demonstrating the tolerability of giving higher than recommended lamivudine doses in our, in our patients with renal dysfunction. And there were no reported adverse effects. Patients in this study had been receiving lamivudine for at least three months, but there was actually a bit of variety in how long they had been receiving lamivudine. So some had been receiving it for multiple years. So it wasn't like they had just started. So giving us options for our patients who have renal dysfunction, we can give them full dose lamivudine, which it kind of just um, validates our current practices that we're doing anyway. So when we think about nephrotoxicity in our HIV positive patients, we want to think about nuclei, sometimes we want to think about nucleotide sparing regimens, namely tenofovir sparing regimens. And we have done this a lot through dual regimens. So I'm going to talk briefly about the Gemini 1 and 2 trials. So this study, these studies, um, large international randomized controlled studies, they were um, identical, um, evaluated the use of starting treatment-naive patients with dolutegravir and lamivudine, um, comparing that to dolutegravir with the traditional two-bone back, two-NRTI backbone of emtricitabine and tenofovir disoproxyl fumarate. Evaluated at various time points, including the primary endpoint was week 48, but we have data up to week 96, and there's currently analysis through week 144. And what we're seeing is that um, starting patients with the two-drug regimen of dolutegravir and lamivudine is actually not inferior to starting them with um, a standard three-drug tenofovir-included uh, regimen. And this is important because some of our patients might present with having concomitant CKD already, right? So potentially don't want to give them something that could worsen their CKD. This is a great option for treatment-naive patients. They also looked at changes in, from baseline in renal biomarkers. And they saw that in the tenofovir group, the three-drug group, um, there were statistically significant decreases in EGFR and statistically significant increases in their CM creatinine, namely attributed to the tenofovir disoproxyl fumarate. And moving on to the SWORD 1 and 2 studies, this evaluated a different nucleoside um, sparing regimen, dolutegravir and ropivirine. So this was actually a switch study. So they compared switching patients to a two-drug regimen um, consisting of dolutegravir and ropivirine in those who were already suppressed to continuing a baseline three or four-drug regimen. And they looked at the primary endpoint of maintaining viral suppression, a viral load below 50 copies per ml. Um, and in both groups, they found that this was non-inferior um, to continuing the standard three-drug regimen. And again, in this study, they also looked at biomarkers for renal function. And essentially, they compared those who had a TDF regimen initially to those who didn't. And in those who did have a TDF 
regimen, they essentially experience improve, improvements in their renal biomarkers when they switch to dolutegravir and ropivirine. Again, giving us data that this is a good combination for a patient who potentially are at risk for nephrotoxicity or have concomitant um, renal issues. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Adi Arana, who's going to talk to us about the safety and tolerability of our newest long-acting agent that's come to market. Great. Thank you so much. So thanks to everyone for joining us today, uh, this morning, this afternoon, depending on where you are. So yes, as, as she mentioned, I'm going to be talking a little bit about the long-acting agents, cabotegravir and rolpivirine, these new agents. I know everyone is, is excited to, to use them, but they are new. So I think there's also a little bit of hesitancy and concern um, in particular about these agents. They were just FDA approved actually earlier this year in January of 2021. So we thought we would take some of this time to review uh, the data that is now currently available, both in terms of the clinical trials that led to its approval and also some data that we have now um, in the aftermath of its approval. So just to start off, again, these are, uh, this is injectable cabotegravir and ropivirine. And the two studies that were, um, that tested the use of these were ATLAS and FLARE. ATLAS was a switch study. So people were already stable on their current regimen, um, did not have a history of resistance to the, to the regimens um, included in cabotegravir and ropivirine, and then were switched to injectables after tolerating a month of oral ropivirine and cabotegravir. And then FLARE was the treatment-naive study. So um, uh, participants who enrolled in, those, in that study were initially started on a regimen of oral abacavir, um, 3TC, and uh, dolutegravir fixed-dose regimen, and then um, were randomized to either continue that regimen or to start the injectables, again, after a monthly oral lead-in period of the oral version of cabotegravir and rolpivirine. And as you can see in this slide, the virologic outcomes in both of these studies, um, comparing the oral regimen versus the long acting were excellent in both groups. So equivalent over 90% um, virologic outcomes at week 48 in both uh, ATLAS, which again was the switch study, um, as well as FLARE, uh, which is the treatment naive study. And then when we look at the safety outcomes, um, comparing both the comparing the long acting with the oral agents, really not significant differences in the two. Both oral and long acting were fairly well tolerated um, in terms of the the stage three or four, so the higher level adverse events. Those who were on long acting in the uh, uh, in long acting in the ATLAS study about a little higher um, rates of things like fatigue or headache or nausea, about 4% compared to zero. But again, these were people who were starting a new regimen versus who were continuing on their baseline ART. Comparable side effect regimen, uh, side effects reported in the FLARE, again, the treatment naive study. So overall, fairly well tolerated um, regimens. The thing that people were most concerned about were the injection site reactions. So injection site reactions were the most common side effect reported certainly in the long acting 
contacting um, groups uh, for both Atlas and Flare. Um, most uh, participants reported some level of injection site reaction with the most common one being pain um, and a few reporting things like nodules or induration swelling, as well as um, a grade three um, injection site reaction or pain only in about one to 2% of these participants. The mean duration of the injection site reaction was three days. And most notably, however, the injection site reaction led to a discontinuation in only about 1% of these participants. So most of the um, injection site reactions were grade one to two severity, and most of them resolving with um, within uh, seven days. There are, um, I, I don't have the slide here, but in general, when you look at the graph of the, of the reported injection site reactions as the study progressed, by the end of the study, there were you know, fewer and fewer participants reporting injection site reactions. So really, it was the first uh, few doses where participants were re even reporting a lot of these injection site reactions here. And now um, there was also a looking um, a process of looking at what was what is called sort of the direct to inject. So as I mentioned in the Allison Flare studies, um, participants you have to be suppressed before you start um, the injectable regimen, and even after that, participants are given an oral version of the cabotegravir and ropivirine prior to starting the monthly injection. And again, that is for due to concern for you know, safety and tolerability of those agents before you administer long acting. So participants in the FLARE study, the treatment naive study, who were originally randomized to continue on the oral version of, so just abacavir, uh, 3TC and lamivudine daily, were then offered at the end of the primary endpoint to transition to long acting. And those participants were offered the option of either doing the month of oral capitegravirol pivoring or going direct to inject. And so this was only eligible for participants who had achieved the viral, uh, a viral load less than 50 copies and were at week 100 of flare. So um, about 121 participants um, started, decided to still take the oral cab and roll privarine, were at, and about 111 decided to forego the lead-in. So they went directly um, to injection. And in terms of virologic suppression, really no um, significant difference. 99% of those who, who did not have the lead-in still had virologic, maintained their virologic suppression compared to 93% of those who did have the lead-in. But I think the other thing is to note is that there was um, no real safety issues um, um, in this population as well. So really, we, they did well in terms of virologic suppression. And then, um, and likewise, um, for safety, there were really between the direct inject and the oral lead-in, no liver monitoring or any stopping events, no confirmed hypersensitivity reactions or other um, significant dermatologic manifestations that we would have been concerned about in administering um, long-acting um, to these participants. I think the other um, 
concern for um, use of these long acting is certainly, as I mentioned earlier, participants um, are on the, have to be on, suppressed per the current um, package insert before starting the injectable regimens. And there have been questions surrounding whether that is truly um, necessary. This is a two drug regimen of, of um, cabotegravir and ropivirine. And so, you know, is it possible given now some of the data that we have with um, Gemini and other studies on two drug regimens, is it possible to do a direct to inject approach, which does not require the, the patient to be um, virologically suppressed? So there was data that was presented at IAS um, last year, as well as the HIV Glasgow meeting, which presented on the compassionate use of long-acting cabotegravir. So this is a program where providers um, applied to the companies um, to get to get access to parenteral ART. So about 35 patients were included. Over half were female, and 80% had detectable viremia at baseline. And this was a challenging population. Um, the median CD4. Um, count was uh, only a hundred, and of these, of this um, challenging population, at the last follow-up that was reported in the study, sixty-three percent did have um, a viral load less than fifty copies at last follow-up. So five patients withdrew from the program, including two had be who had become suppressed after stopping long-acting cabotegravir and ropivirine. And injection site reactions um, were the most common adverse event, though no person um, withdrew due to the injection site reaction. Five persons did have significant um, adverse event, although only one was felt to be treatment related, um, related to loss of consciousness after the administration of the injection. And then um, this past summer, um, you know, as this has been um, approved and as well as, um, uh, you know, sort of being reviewed by our um, insurance companies here in the U.S., there is a implementation effectiveness study of the use of um, long-acting cab and ropivirine injection um, that was also presented um, at IAS um, this summer. So this is a hybrid three implementation effectiveness based 3B study. So this is US-based uh, taking place in eight clinics across this country. Two at federally, two of them are federally qualified health centers, two are university-based clinics, two private practices, and then um, as well as an HMO and an AIDS Healthcare Foundation clinic. And so what they did was they interviewed um, both providers um, and clinic staff, as well as patients who were started on um, the monthly regimen, and to really get a sense of questions surrounding um, implementation of this uh, um, strategy at the clinic, as well as acceptability of the use of these agents by the patients themselves. So among these eight clinics, 115 patients were started on the injectables. And again, um, the DHHS guidelines on the use of these agents, which includes 
Um, patients who, again, have achieved virologic suppression, don't have a history of uh, virologic failure or evidence of resistance with um, of either a predicted resistance with either of these agents, rolpivirine or capitegravir, would have been eligible um, to, to start on the injectables. And as you can see, of these 115 patients, um, most 88% um, both achieved and maintained virologic um, success. And um, it was really consistent with the phase three data. Fatigue and headache were the most common non-injection site reaction related, drug-related adverse events. And 2% of the patients withdrew due to injection site reactions. 93% of the patients thought time spent in the clinic for CAB uh, long-acting um, injections was extremely or very acceptable. And I think as the clinics became used to sort of the processes and the procedures of both administering the injections and patients receiving the injections, the median duration of the visit length decreased over time. So almost an hour um, at month one to about half an hour um, by month 11. The other thing I will point out, and this was mirrored in the um, phase three studies, is that acceptability of the treatment was extremely high, um, even from month one to month 12. So nine, over 90%, 91% of patients were excited and, and want really you know, excited about starting injectables. And by month 12, that number only improved to closer to 98%. Now with both the phase three studies and with this study, we are talking about participants who are very interested in using injectables and are very motivated. So, um, you know, sort of not, not a broad swath of uh, the patients that we're necessarily treating, so very motivated patients. And so I think questions still remain about sort of broader use and broader implementation of this strategy. So looking forward to discussing um, some of these issues with you all, certainly can take this opportunity to plug a study that we is still ongoing in ACTG, the latitude study where we are looking at the long acting strategy in um, participants with a history of non-adherence. I think that ends it for my session for now and we'll go to the Q&A session. Uh, yes, um, so I've been, we've got a question in. And feel free to um, ask questions. And if not, we will, I think the data that you presented was very interesting and we could have a whole discussion about that. But Alejandra asked, would you recommend changing to two drug regimens containing ropivirine if a patient's viral load is less than 50, but the CD hasn't recovered, the CD4 hasn't recovered and is still less than 200? So it's a really great question because we know that um, in initial studies where ropivirine came to market, they ha we had lower response rates in those who had elevated viral loads and as well as those who had um, low CD4 counts. Now, if they're already virally suppressed, the viral load's not as much of an issue. Um, but should we think about the um, the issues with ropivirine in this low CD4 count? Um, I understand the hesitation for some providers to want to use ropivirine in patients with low CD4 counts, but I would say that one thing to consider is it is harder to 
attain viral suppression than maintaining it. So in certain situations, it might be appropriate. And then we know that we have patients who don't fully reconstitute their immune system, no matter how long they've been on therapy. So if they um, would be a good candidate for a ropivirine-based regimen, it might not be the only reason I opt not to. However, if you can also get away with dolutegravir and lamivudine and you're more comfortable with that, I don't think that that's wrong either. But I will say I've definitely done it in practice. Yeah, I agree with that uh, that comment. I think that um, if you know the the viral suppression for me is the bigger key um, in terms of even that um, restriction. So as long as somebody has achieved viral suppression, just as you said, um, Dr. Bernice, and is you know, and now we're considering the switch at that point, I feel I feel very comfortable. I don't hesitate. Um, at that point to, to, to do it, go ahead and do the switch. That was the only question we've received so far. Um, but I was interested in your, I guess, clinical experience with using the long acting so far. Um, yeah, I've, I've, I've pulled everyone that is using it to see what they're, what's happening. And I hear different things. <laughs> yeah. So it has been, I think, um, an, an interesting, um, adventure since January. So in we and my clinic, we have not started using commercial cabotegravir ropivirine as of yet. Some of the barriers um, or the bigger barrier right now has been um, sort of the, the insurance issues that are surrounding it and the cost related to that. So there are um, things that we are sorting out, um, and I think discussions that have been going back and forth. You know, the in the implementation study, I didn't present that data, but there was a lot of questions with regards to um, who is going to make sure that participants come in on a monthly basis. And, you know, who's going to keep track of that? And are we going to be selecting the correct patient? So what kind of structure do we have to have in place? And so I think similar to, you know, in our clinic, we have um, women come in for their Depo-Provera injections. And we do have somebody who's assigned to do that particular um, uh, you know, task. So I think we're still in the process of doing that, but our biggest limitation was concerns with regards to the reimbursement structure. And I think as that sorts out, um, we will be using it more commercially. We're actually sort of triaging it to participants who are coming off of study first. Um, we'll be the first ones to get our clinic administered um, injections. And then, um, and then we'll be going um, into discussing with our um, patients um, with regards to those who want to on their own come up on that. But I think I think it will continue to be a long um, discussion um, with regards to, you know, uh, processes and procedures. The other point I'll go ahead and make with regards to that is the other thing that's under review with the FDA um, is administration of the injection um, every two months rather than every month. And so that is still under FDA review. And I think once that um, data, you know, which the data has been presented and showed to be um, efficacious, I think that might be another thing that may increase 
um, acceptability of clinics to be willing to have, you know, patients come in um, every other month as well. So I think we have, and we have a couple of questions now um, with regards to the long acting. So there's a question. Thank you, um, Alicia, for your question. So in the long acting cab and Rolpivirin compassionate use study, was the SAE of loss of consciousness attributed more to RPV or cabotegravir? Um, so I, I don't know if in the present in the presentation they um, made that distinction. I will say that um, there um, was in the phase three study a report of, um, in, of unintentional intravenous um, potentially administration of RPV, and that was determined by blood levels that were collected where there was a vasovagal event um, at that time. And, um, and so that, um, and, and, and that was RPV at that time. And I'm, but I'm not sure with regards to this, you know, again, one case of, um, uh, loss of consciousness, was it considered, uh, related to, um, admin, you know, the injection itself, was it a vasovagal event, admit, you know, related to just receiving an administration of an injection as can, can happen. So I'm not sure if, if the, if the, um, uh, if that clear attribution was made between RPV and CAB. We have another question from Winnie. She's asking, are you using the lead-in PO CAB or CAB recovering or just going straight to injection? I know in my clinic, uh, they are doing the PO lead-in. Yeah, so currently I'm going to emphasize DHHS guidelines, FDA package inserts still, you know, recommends the oral cab rolpivirine lead-in um, prior to straight to injection. Now, but there have been cases, again, like such as in the compassionate use and other sites around the country that are in a you know, um, certain patient population deciding to forego the oral lead-in. Um, and I think that's going to, you know, that can be considered on a case-by-case -case basis. You know, if I have a patient who um, has sort of a proclivity to having, you know, adverse events, I probably am going to go ahead and use the oral lead-in. If I have somebody who has been tolerating in particular the, the contents of the injectable, say, for example, somebody who's been on dolutegravir or pivoting and has been doing just fine with that for some time, I don't necessarily see a need to give them the oral, um, you know, version of cabotegravir and rolpivirine again. They've already tolerated it. Um, but I would still have that conversation with the patient um, to see, you know, how they feel. But, but as a clinician, I would feel very comfortable not necessarily giving that, you know, patient um, the lead-in. I think as we gain more experience, um, you know, we can, we can, you know, learn from that. But I think there are going to be cases, um, you know, in the, the details of the compassionate use, there were, there were some patients who were just intolerant of oral medications. And so they, you know, did not use the injectables, sorry, they did not use the oral and went straight to injectable. Um, but in the, in, in, in certain cases, I think um, will be, will be, it might, it probably is okay to go. Mm -hmm. 
We have another question from Winnie. If we switch a patient from dolutegravir, bacavir, et cetera, straight into injections, is the original regimen continued for one month or stopped right away? So it's it's stopped right away. Um, so you know you you take your last dose of your. I mean, this is going by what happened in the phase three studies. You know, you take your last dose of your medication, um, the day oral medication the day before, and then you you are administered what's called a loading dose. Um, so it's a slightly higher dose um, of the injectables, and um, and then you're monitored after that. Um, so yes, yeah, so that you, you would, it would just be like, you know, if somebody was on some oral birth control and then went to Depo Provera, you know, you would, they're on Depo now. So it would be very similar. Ralph is asking, what do you see as compliance issues for general use of injectables? Yeah, so that's a great question. So wh- wh- why don't you start Dr. Bernice? Go ahead. Yeah, I think the one thing that I've heard from other, oh, sorry, my lights went off, um, that I've heard from some uh, people who are starting to use the combination injectable is uh, getting people into clinic for their regular visits, not just their injection visits, right? You have to make sure they're also seeing their providers and being monitored labs-wise and things like that. And then everyone is also afraid of like, what if they, you know, just stop coming to clinic and they don't have any, potentially don't have any oral to cover them or don't know to to start taking orals to cover them. So I think those are the biggest issues that I've identified thus far. I agree. I mean, I think there's there's certainly a lot of concern with regards to um, adherence to the regimen and then the concern for resistance development. So, um, both relpivirine and cabotegravir, you know, they have what's called, you know, the tail. So once you administer it, you know, it stays in your system for for some time. Cabotegravir has a has a longer tail. So if somebody stops coming for their injections and, as you mentioned, does not start taking oral medications at the same time, there is this, you know, possibility that they will. Um, at some point, just be on cabotegravir, you know, an integrase inhibitor by itself. And so um, because of that, you know, could they, could you then potentially develop high level resistance to integrase, which is our, a very well tolerated, you know, first line regimen for all of us. So I think, um, you know, communication can, you know, with the, with the, with the, your patient, good clinic procedures. Um, and I think, again, as we mentioned um, earlier, um, an inter- a dosing interval that allows for some forgiveness, the dosing windows, as it were. You know, we talk about more concern at the beginning versus losing them at the end. Um, but I think as we gain more experience, we'll learn. Anytime we have a paradigm shift, there's a little bit of hesitancy um, you know, and I think a lot of theoretical concern, but at the end of the day, we got to meet our patients where they are. So we can sit here and, and, you know, you and I as providers can be sort of very patriarchal and think about, oh, it could be this, it could be that. But at the end of the day, when our patients ask for something, we, I think we got, we got to see how we can make it happen. Absolutely. Winnie asked. Around, 
Can I, I'm sorry, Dr. Ron, I think that's a really good segue. Do you want to talk about the treatment emergent resistance that came up with long-acting CAB and rilpivirine in the clinical studies? Was that something that was of concern? Sure, sure. So certainly, again, like that, I think, and I'll, I'll just pull up this slide. Um, this is data from the phase three studies. So so this was an and with this with an entire caveat of this is a very select patient motivated patient population um, who chose to be part of phase three you know um, studies and and there was very little resistance that was reported um, even emergent emerging resistance in this popu in this population so pooled in both Atlas and Flare. There were six reported cases of, of failure for which they were able to document um, uh, resistant strains. And so, and these are listed here. So these were all in HIV subtype A, mostly in subtype A1. And there, and and in these for these participants, only a couple had the baseline um, NNRTI resistance. Um, and and they but they also had a baseline L74I, which is in sort of a non-significant, felt to be non-significant insti um, uh, mutation. And um, but when they actually went back um, and looked at all participants who achieved HIV-1RA less than 41, this L74I was not. Um, even though it was present in those participants, they had no problem achieving um, week 48. So we're not sure if it's this interaction with this particular subtype and this, um, you know, and this uh, particular um, INSTI, you know, um, mutation. Um, and, and again, the, the numbers aren't that high. We're still talking about only six um, participants total. So it's sort of, it's hard, or, and only five who had this particular mutation. So I think um, in general, we still have, I, you know, um, data to be collected. Um, the other point I think is that um, after week 48, they followed, you know, continue to follow participants up to week 96 and really no, no additional cases of treatment emergent um, resistance were reported. And again, this very motivated pre-screened, you know, um, trial participants. Um, we have another question. Winnie asks, once you start the injectable, how often or how soon should the viral counts and CD4 counts be checked? Um, so good question. Um, I would say that, um, you know, you, you would follow sort of clinical practices as you're doing. Once I start the injectable, I would probably have the participant come in um, at a one-month time point. Um, you know, because they're coming in, you know, obviously for their injection, I would probably check a viral load um, within so, sort of six to eight weeks after the first injection. Um, and, you know, you're checking to make sure there's tolerability. And then after that, probably, you know, within three months or so. And then, um, and then, you know, we would sort of go into our regular frame. And, and again, that's, depending on which patient we're talking about. Are we talking about someone who's been very well tolerated, doing well, no history of resistance versus somebody I'm like, 
okay, you've had some challenges, let's go. You're coming in anyway. I'm going to check more frequently. That's and the CD4, I would follow CD4 guidelines. Like if somebody's CD4 is high and they've been high, I don't I'm not as worried about what's happening with their CD4. I'm more concerned about what's happening with their viral load. Yeah, I agree, especially after switching therapy, whether it's long-acting captegoralpivirine, you want to make sure that they don't have viral rebound. So, completely agree. Um, and I think to highlight those differences in patient populations, I think that's very important specifically with this um, particular regimen because, again, a lot of the data that we have seen with cabropivirine has been in a very specific patient population. And it's not always a patient population who we might want to use it in. Thank you to Drs. Bernice and Rana, and thanks to you, the listener. To listen to more episodes in this series and to see slides and modules on emerging insights on adverse events during ART and implications for treatment, see the links in the show notes. Thank you and have a great day.